0: Singularity by Bill DeSmet, copyright 2004 by William H. DeSmet, all rights reserved.
1: Woohoo! Yay! Hallelujah. Hallelujah! Welcome to the final episode of Singularity by Bill DeSmet. We are recording the Q&A episode live in Vienna, Virginia for your edification here on Halloween Night and I love that song. That was a great song that you picked out for that. Thank you. You're very welcome. So uh, the this all started when we met at Worldcon, the World Science Fiction Convention. When was that? August. 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 And uh, I and was telling you how much I really enjoyed this book.
2: And sweetie, who are you? Ah, yeah,
1: me. Who am I? I am Paul Fisher. I am the host of the Balticon podcast and the ADD cast. Uh, recently I've read a couple of things for uh, Pseudopod and Escape Pod. And
2: I am Martha Holloway. I'm Paul's wife, and I've also read for Escape Pod, and we do both do work on ADDCast, Balcom Balticom podcast. And we're very, very happy to have with us uh, Bill DeSmet to answer the questions that you have posed to him.
1: Well thank you for having me, and thanks for the coffee. You're very welcome. Uh, it's from Hawaii. It's good stuff. It is. We, we enjoy it quite a lot. Um, now, this all started at Worldcon, where uh, we met each other for the first time, and mm-hmm. I was telling you how much I, I was really enjoying the book, and you were almost only, only about halfway through it at that point, I think. Maybe a little uh, bit past- We were into the
0: final stretch. We, we were certainly in the middle of part three. Part three is the longest thing in the book. It almost had – became parts three and four.
2: (laughs) It's hard to know where to stop, isn't it?
1: (laughs) But um, I said, you know, why don't don't you do – you know, I had a whole bunch of questions and it wasn't even over yet. And you've answered a bunch of them through the course of the story. Um,
2: But apparently there are still questions out there.
1: That's right. So, um, you know, I said, why don't don't you do a QA and a episode? And uh, I said, I'll host it for you. And
2: I said, let's do it. So here we are. And, uh, yeah. and, and the best uh, question will receive. A free
0: autographed copy of Singularity, autographed by me and uh, if desired, uh, personalized as well.
1: Cool. And uh, we will be uh, what announcing that on the website on Halloween. Yes. E- yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, perhaps just put a little clip in behind the uh, Q&A podcast itself. Okay. Just indicating who who won it
1: so yeah at this at this moment in time we're we're recording this in advance, we have not actually uh picked the the winner yet, so the, there's there's a big suspense there. We'll do the drum roll <laughs> <laughs> and who knows maybe the quality of the question will be chosen by the quality of my answer. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. So, uh, before we get started, I do want to thank T. Morris of the Survival Guide for Writing Fantasy and the po- podcast novel Moravi for uh, introducing me to Singularity. Uh, <laughs> it, it, his it intro is- was, was very short and succinct and uh, told me nothing about uh, Singularity itself. But on that alone, I started listening to it, and it pretty much dominated my patio book listening for several months.
2: And Paul started sharing it with me, and I was like, "Next episode, next episode."
0: <laughs> well, thanks. It was a lot of fun to do that. The the audio version of the book, although it it meant spending a month in an attic.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're familiar with that. It's and, it's a and, lot of work to do this stuff, and and uh, we're glad that people appreciate it. And not eating dinner
0: because if you ate dinner, then you picked up all sorts of stomach. Gurgling digestion sounds <laughs> that, that uh,
1: really didn't go with the text for the most part. Very true. Very, very true. So, uh, shall we get to the questions? Please. All right. Uh, our first question is from Tim at Safe Mail, and Tim says, "Dear Bill, first, thanks for making this great book available as a podcast. I really enjoyed listening." The credibility of most of the science and tech, along with the strong storyline and characters, really makes this an enjoyable and thought-provoking novel. Can I answer that? <laughs> oh, he didn't get to the question. No, no, There's no question yet. You can't answer unless there's a question. Uh, and he's, he has two questions. Uh, question one is, which explanation of the Tenguska event do you consider most likely the airburst of a meteor comet or the Jackson-Ryan hypothesis, and question two, uh, I've heard a criticism of the Jackson-Ryan hypothesis is that there is no corresponding exit event, a point that is fundamental to the setup of your novel. I was wondering, could a potential exit event have occurred through the Atlantic and not have been noticed? It seems there was not nearly as much seismic monitoring in 1908. Look forward to reading slash hearing the next book. And we're going to pair this with a question from Kat from uh, Lipstick Aliens. And you'll get to hear Kat in her own voice.
0: Hi, Bill. This is Kat from the Lipstick Aliens podcast. I have to say that I love your
2: book, Singularity. I mean, drugs, sex, and physics. That is awesome. Amazing. I have a couple of questions. And my first one is do you think that the Jackson Ryan hypothesis is something that the world should take another look at and your life experiences seem to make you a loose equivalent of Jonathan Knox? Is there a real life equivalent of Mariana? Well, keep up the good work. I look forward to book two. Thanks. Bye. So you have three questions to answer. Yep.
0: I actually do. And uh, maybe I should preface this by saying that, uh, I, was really struck by the excellence of all the questions. Um, And Kat in particular with that second one was right on for a reason I'll explain in a little bit. But let me me take a look at the Tunguska uh, event in terms of its modern interpretations. And Tim, uh, by asking the question in in terms of meteor slash comet versus Jackson-Ryan has sort of put his finger onto something, which is that we have narrowed the horizon of, of alternatives, alternative hypotheses that we're willing to consider for the Tunguska event, despite the fact, and most most people would narrow it further down, exclude Jackson Ryan. They really hadn't looked at it in 30 years after the lack of an exit event became well-documented, and just say, well, it was either a meteor meteorite or a comet. Um, and that seems to me to be too narrow, given that uh, neither of those two hypotheses have generated any sort of uh, verifiable predictions, uh, found any indisputable evidence, and and yet you get people who are utterly convinced and convince others. Tom Gerroles, writing 10 years ago in Scientific American, had this great quote that scientists have always understood that it was either a meteor or a comet, speaking of the Tunguska event. Well, you know, I mean, there are alternative uh, explanations possible. I've seen that even the ones that don't get into the uh, UFO uh, sphere, although,
2: go, go ahead. It could have just been
0: Ogdi. It, it could have been Ogdi. that's that's very true well that's what the Evenki uh, would would tell you to this day but but there are things like uh, solar plasmoids uh, a plasmoid ejected by the sun there's even a group uh, out on the web right now that that have a, a, a Tunguska forum on topica uh, where the the main thing that they're trying to demonstrate is that we might have Tunguska exactly backwards and it might have not come down from the sky but up from the center of the earth that it it was a volcanic event that somehow ignited a, a a plasma all the way back and people were seeing this in reverse that that seems a little bit of a stretch to me but but the point is there are alternative hypotheses some of them make verifiable predictions so the state of tunguska studies is sort of getting like uh, the way uh, Lee Smolden describes the state of string theory in his most recent book, The Trouble with Physics. That is, you, you've got utter confidence on the basis of no evidence whatsoever, and yet the, the alternatives that people are totally confident in have chased all other considerations from, from the field.
1: It, it seems to me it's more of a Sherlock Holmes kind of logic. It's uh, uh, when you've eliminated everything else, uh, whatever is left, no matter how unlikely, must be true. And you know they can find reasons to eliminate a bunch of other stuff. So they say, "Well, there, there's no reason to eliminate a comment because you know that's that seems the most likely." So we'll just go with that, right? But but, but quote, there's no
0: proof. But I'll quote Sherlock Holmes back at you: the the incident of the the dog in the night, the curious incident of the dog in the night, and the what the one that didn't bark. <laughs> the dog did nothing in the night, and that was the curious incident. In point of fact, the, the utter lack of any evidence, despite the fact that people have been combing through the Taiga uh, at least for 80 years, is telling in its, in its own right. Maybe we need to expand the search. There are certainly uh, some verifiable or falsifiable predictions that Jackson Ryan makes, like we ought to be able to – something like NASA's uh, GRACE experiment, the gravity recovery and, and climate experiment – should be able to pick up um, a fast transient if they were looking for it. It's probably in there in the data if it exists, and if it if it doesn't, then we'd be able to at least rule one hypothesis
1: out. Excellent. There you go. So, um, so the the question still stands. Which which event do you consider most likely? Ah,
0: well, this is this is what they teach you your first week in author school. It is never undermine the premise of your book <laughs> so uh i'll answer that one if if uh, uh dan brown will uh, weigh forth on on the divinity of jesus christ
2: uh.
0: <laughs> and the likelihood that he married uh at all exactly and went to live in the south of francis who would
2: not want to do yeah i've been there it's lovely
1: <laughs> okay um so regarding the um uh The the Jackson-Ryan hypothesis and the uh, exit event. Right.
0: Uh, Yeah, I didn't mean to be facetious in my final uh, response there. But uh, uh, I I consider that it's an open question that could easily be closed. So rather than me saying one way or the other, why don't we just get somebody to – Get some
2: experimental evidence. Go go
0: back through. Well, the data is already there. NASA has got it uh, uh, sitting down in Houston, in fact
1: okay um, so I guess uh, we're gonna we're gonna move on to the next question
0: yeah to Tim's second question
1: uh, yeah Tim's second question was about the exit event oh okay. that there that there wasn't a lot of seismic monitoring and could could an exit event have happened and nobody noticed right the the premise of
0: the the model of black hole I use in singularity is that it doesn't generate a whole lot of of seismic activity, it's relatively small for a black hole. It's much smaller than the original one uh, used by Mike Ryan and, and Albert Jackson in their 1973 article. In fact, um, when we stood on the sa- at the same rostrum back in November of uh, 2004, I had the unique distinction of defending a thesis against its authors because they had they had sort of moved away from, from the
1: original <laughs> position.
0: And I said, no, no, all you have to do is, is, is shrink the hole down and you eliminate a lot of the problems that have been, have been cited, like seismic events. Seismic activity within the earth was, was first raised in a 1975 article by Jack Burns, George Greenstein, and Ken Verosub. And they claimed to begin with, that you'd find a disk of fused rock and soil at the impact site, if it had been a black hole, of the mass that Jackson Ryan were predicting, which was a small asteroid size, um, a disk of, of glass essentially four kilometers wide, and that on transit through the Earth, it would have uh, kicked up the equivalent of 1,000 earthquakes per second, for about eighty minutes, and that that definitely would have been noticeable, uh, regardless of of what state
2: the uh, seismometers were in back in nineteen oh eight. People probably would have felt it. But, you, you'd think that they would actually have mentioned it in their journals and in the newspaper, maybe. <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, but but the um, the exit event would not have been denoted by uh, an undersea uh, earthquake if. The hole were the size of Waterlock. Instead, what you'd get would be God's own waterspout coming up out of the middle of the Atlantic, followed probably by a tsunami that would have hit the Azores at least, possibly Iceland, even the coast of Great Britain or Canada. It, it would not have gone unnoticed. It would have disrupt, disrupted shipping all across the the uh, North Atlantic sea lanes as well. So, um, right question, uh, wrong effect, but. An exit event would have been noticed.
1: Okay. And uh, let's move on to uh, Kat's, uh, second, Kat's question. second question, which is uh, – well, her first question, do you think that we should take a, another look at the Jackson-Ryan hypothesis? Uh, yeah. I, and- you're basically saying we should look at all the other hypotheses. Hypotheses.
2: hypotheses. Yes, sweetie. Speak English.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, Greek in this case. <laughs> that's me, correct. We speak English well. Uh, good. Yeah, that's it. Um, so, uh, you, that's basically what you are saying is yes. I'm. I'm not only saying yes. I'm saying
0: we have the wherewithal to do it. Not only do we have uh, the grace data piling up down in Houston, the United Nations has recently begun um, scanning for subterranean uh, nuclear tests. And the data that they're gathering might also betray the presence of a fast transient uh, moving through the earth. Um, let me just elaborate on that for a moment. Nobody expects earthquakes to travel at at uh, several kilometers per second uh, in an orbit, so nobody looks for that particular type of phenomenon. It's roughly equivalent to the discovery of quasars back in the mid-60s. Uh, everybody just assumed that was scruff. It was, it was noise in the data. And I suspect that it's possible that somebody has already observed uh, borderlock transiting through the Earth the way that, uh, that Jack Adler does, but they just dismissed it because it did not fit any theoretical model that, uh, that they had of what ought to be happening inside the Earth.
2: And so, pro- possibly didn't notice that there was a periodicity mm-hmm. involved or – right. Sure. So what we really need here
1: is a grad student looking <laughs> for <Absolutely>. a thesis. <laughs> That's right. That's what you need. Yep. Someone who could either either uh, uh, prove it or pretty much uh, put it to bed forever. Exactly. So that, that – either option exists. That's right. right. Uh, and uh, and uh, her second question is uh, your life experiences seem to be a loose equivalent of Jonathan Knox. So uh, who is uh, Mariana based on? Well, before
0: before I get to Mariana, let, let me just point out that uh, I uh, I think Leonard Nimoy once wrote a book called I Am Not Spock, and then he wrote another book called I Am Spock. <laughs> and if we put, we own both of those, if you, if you yes. the, well, you have to keep them apart because they'll implode. And
2: <laughs> That's correct.
0: It's like uh, electron matter, and positron. Yeah. Jonathan Knox is, is an amalgam of both some traits and uh, passages, my own personal history, as well as an opportunity that I've had over the years to observe consultants in action. And I'm, I'm thinking of one in particular by the name of Steve, who, uh, who would match Knox quip for quip and, and uh, story for story when it came down to dealing with clients and, and trying to find the right word that would turn the situation around. So I wouldn't want to take credit for all or any of John Knox's uh, exploits. I'm not even as brave as he is, I'm afraid. Um, But if we can assume that we put paid to that part of the question, um, Everybody in the book, just about, with the exception of, well, even Grecian. When I spent some time in Moscow, I I got to meet uh, officials and authorities that that would have been – certainly would have been called back for a second audition for for Grecian. Um, (laughs) uh, I have not crossed paths with anyone answering Yuri's description so far. But everybody else in the book does have, to some extent, a real-life counterpart. I could introduce you to Mycroft, for example. Um, uh, Sasha and Galina were uh, modeled on friends from from the time I spent as an exchange student in Moscow, albeit 10 years earlier than when Knox was there. The only person in the book, the only really major character in the book that um, I don't have a counterpart for in real life is Mariana. She's, entirely my own creation. And for a while there, I was asking early readers what they thought of Mariana. It was kind of a litmus test of how well I was doing at the craft of fiction as to whether I had created someone believable and interesting out of whole cloth, so to speak. So Mariana was really
1: made up.
2: Marianne is a great character. Oh, I really love
1: her. She really is. She comes across very very strong and very believable. And we'll see what happens to her next. I uh, uh, can't uh, wait ca- can't Cannot wait. <laughs> wait at all hopefully uh, hopefully you'll come down again and uh, give us an advanced reading on that when you're ready so uh honey would you like to read uh, number two
2: certainly and I apologize if I mispronounce this but uh, this uh, question is from h mirsch uh, from Mac news if the Tunguska oh goodness if the Tunguska event had been caused by a microscopic black hole I don't think you'd ever have A chance to write a book about it. Instead, there would be an earth-mass black hole orbiting the sun. A microscopic black hole may be smaller than an atom, and from that point of view, it should be able to pass through solid objects with little problem. But you also have to take the gravity into account. Vertilac is supposed to be the mass of a mountain, right? You might say, but a mountain doesn't have much gravity. And you'd be correct. But think about distances. Even if you're standing on the mountain, you're still thousands of feet above the center gravity is inversely proportional to the square of the distance so take that mountain compress it to less than atom size and get really close a millimeter or two and the gravity becomes extreme combine that with the already enormous hydrostatic or should that be geostatic pressures inside the earth and the stuff in the vicinity and the stuff in the vicinity of the black hole would start rushing in until nothing but a somewhat bigger black hole remains
0: well, uh it may come as a surprise to some listeners and readers but in fact I did take all of that into account in writing the book and if I didn't the uh the readers that uh, went over the book for me including MIT's uh current relativity guru uh Scott Hughes and uh Kip Thorne of the uh of Caltech Caltech who has Mm -hmm. some small experience of black holes. He's the one (laughs) one that invented uh, the wormhole time, uh, sorry, faster than light travel for Carl Sagan's contact. Um, And they didn't have a particular issue with the, the fact that Vortilak could be orbiting around inside the earth and us still be here. I was fortunate enough in the course of uh, my my work on this book, to make the acquaintance of both Al Jackson and Mike Ryan. And Mike was was kind enough to run a back-of-the-envelope calculation as to how long it would take Bordelock, being about the size of an atomic nucleus, to totally consume the Earth. And he came up with about one 6 years. That's... Uh, one with um, lots of it, zeros. Lots, lots, and lots of zeros. I think it's either eighteen or twenty-one. I have to check my notes. Um, in point of fact, it isn't something that ought to disrupt your plans for the coming weekend. But uh, Mike left a couple things out of that equation. One of which was the likelihood, or increasing likelihood, that we may be seeing uh, extra dimensions. Uh, in our picture of the universe, uh, string theory posits them. So do some theories that that don't assume that the fundamental particles uh, in the universe, the fundamental constituents, are tiny vibrating strings. If, if in fact, there are extra dimensions, that helps to explain the extreme weakness of gravity within our own uh, four-dimensional universe, three of space, one of time. Gravity is something like Ten to the forty first times weaker than even electromagnetism, and a couple of orders of magnitude weaker than the strong nuclear force mm-hmm. um, it's incredibly uh weak, feeble for a force of nature, and in fact has given that fact itself has given rise to something called the hierarchy problem, one of the possible reasons for gravity being so weak. Is that it might be the only force that can bleed out into the extra dimensions, uh, of which there are, by depending on on which one you count, uh, six or seven, I think. Yeah. Um, so and,
2: and string theory posits somewhere around nine or ten, and some even yeah. higher
0: than that. So uh, string theory has ten. M theory has eleven. No. But but the eleventh could be a transform of of other uh, phenomena. So. These, these counts are kind of hard to arrive at. Uh, the point is that if string theory or or some equivalent is true, then gravity could be very much stronger at very small scales, in which case the event horizon would be correspondingly larger for something like Vordelac, and its ability to gobble would be correspondingly increased. That's all speculation— However, I should point out that if that grad student in the first, from the first question managed to establish that Vortilac is down there, we ought to go and catch it because it would offer one of the few possibilities of verifying experimentally whether string theory is
1: true or not. Way cool. And, of course, uh, having listened to your book, we all know how to do that capture and what the dangers Absolutely. are. Yes, <laughs> just need that room temperature soup. Superconductivity we're getting close
2: right you got to watch out for that Russian former KGB yes yeah guy yep.
1: <laughs> all right so uh, let's move on to the next question this is uh, from Mike at two wire if the arrival of the singularity caused such devastation at Tenguska how can it orbit inside the earth and only be detectable by its magnetic disturbance seems like either the arrival wouldn't have been as devastating or or the orbiting inside the Earth would cause more disturbance that should be easily detectable. Okay, Uh, and that's a good question
0: as well. And the answer is that there's one thing that distinguishes vortilock on arrival from vortilock inside the Earth, and that is the medium that it's passing through. In the one case, air. In the other case, rock. Now, what happens, and let me... Parenthesize this by saying that in chapter seven uh, mythologies, what I'm about to say is is touched on a little bit, but the exigencies of writing a book and trying to maintain the pace are such that you sometimes don't get to to uh, elaborate at at length as we, to the science.
2: We the readers deeply appreciate that you didn't lecture to us,
0: <laughs> but uh, did inform us. But if you want lectures. Uh, go to com, and there you will find a series of 13 of them written by the real-life original of Dr. Jack Adler. I, I told you that there were real-life uh, equivalents for a lot of these characters, and Jack Adler is, is one. Um, in any case, let me let me give a bit more detail on what the fictional Jack Adler glosses over in Chapter 7. So, Vordalock is... Uh, just coming in at the edge of the atmosphere, and we know two things about it, other than its mass, which is five billion tons, or about is that fifteen thousand Empire State Buildings, I think. Uh,
2: I haven't weighed the Empire State <laughs> Building recently. I'll take your word for it.
0: Something like a third of a, a million tons, I think. So, yeah, that would work. Okay. Um, so um, we, we, in addition to its mass, we know about Vortilaux radiation, and we know about the fact that it is posited to be a magnetic monopole. Radiation first. That's due to a result found back in 1974 by Stephen Hawking that indicated that all black holes radiate, they have entropy, and entropy connotes temperature, and in this case, it's actually an artifact of the curvature of the horizon that permits virtual particle pairs to become real and one of them falls in decreasing the mass. Uh, It's a little bit complicated and that's not the only model for how this is done. But the fact of the radiation emerges from the math without any sort of physical interpretation behind it. So you're free to think about it any way you like, as long as you think about black holes radiate and the smaller a black hole is the more fiercely it radiates. Uh, Stellar sized or stellar massed black hole, is going to radiate much, much less than the cosmic background uh, radiation. So it's actually going to be pulling in more particles and and growing versus the amount of loss due to its radiation. Something the size of Vortilak will have a surface temperature in the range of tens of billions of degrees, and some of the really, really small ones that people are worried about, the Large Hadronic Collider producing, uh... Would would have temperatures billions of degrees hotter, uh, billions of times hotter than that. uh, Something like a billion times the temperature of the inside of the sun. That's another question that we can get back to that. So anyway, you you got this fierce radiation as Vortolac transits the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is relatively opaque. It's putting out photons at all wavelengths, but it's putting out a a lot of uh, of hard radiation. Uh, gamma and and x-rays. And the atmosphere is opaque to that kind of radiation to the extent that the individual molecules of nitrogen and oxygen are blocking it. And for their trouble, they're getting the electrons knocked out of their orbits, which produces both a plasma of free electrons and ions, Mm-hmm. positively charged remnants of atoms atoms with with fewer than the requisite number of electrons to balance the protons in their nucleus. So what you've got is this charged bubble that forms around vortolock as it descends both on its sides in its wake and out in front as well. And now comes the second mechanism which is the fact that vortolock is posited to be a magnetic monopole which are in some favor right now among cosmologists, that the um, the early stages of formation of the universe could have generated a whole bunch of uh, black monopoles, and Vortilak might be one. Well, a black monopole is a magnet with only one pole, a north or a south, and I actually forget which one. I think Vortilak was supposed to be a north pole only. But in either case, it's going to look like a sphere with spines sticking out in all directions from it, like the spines on a kushball. ball. Mm-hmm. And now it it it's generating all of these charged particles around it, but they're at rest. It's moving faster than the speed of sound, at least somewhere between uh, 16 kilometers per second on up. Uh, 16 kilometers per second is about the minimum that you could, you could uh, encounter the earth with, assuming it came from outside the, solar system to begin with. Mm-hmm. The charged particles don't like to cross magnetic field lines. They tend to stick. And as they stick, they tend to exert drag and they also tend to come along for the ride. And so now you've got this enormous column of air building up alongside and behind Vordelock as it comes down. Um, not just tons and tons, millions of tons of air and, that begins to produce phenomena like sonic boom because because the air molecules are being accelerated faster than the speed of sound. By some eyewitness accounts, there were 14 separate sonic booms as the thing came down. Wow. As, as, as the radiation attempts to leak out through the, uh, the uh, surrounding cloud of ions, it, it comes out in the ultraviolet and, and violet and blue wavelengths. And in fact, the object was described as being a bright blue pipe splitting the heavens in half. And when it touches down, I don't want to say impact because, well, it's not going to make much of a splash. Um, What does make the splash is all of that air coming in behind it. It's like a vertical hurricane impacting the ground. And, of course, it's superheated because it's been accelerated far beyond the the speed it wants to go at. And it's at that point that, that you get this enormous Two to 40 megaton explosion that knocks down, by some estimates, 80 million trees in the Tunguska River Basin and, and goes on to generate a shock wave that was detectable on uh, barometers around the world um, as far away as Jakarta, in- Indonesia, and Washington, D.C., and actually circled the Earth twice. So all of those effects can be explained by magnetism and radiation. All of those effects go away when the medium you're working through, walking through, transiting, is rock versus air.
2: Why is that, Jim? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Bill, brain, brain damage. Why well, is that, Bill?
0: <laughs> Maybe Jim has an answer. I don't um, know.
2: Maybe. <laughs> um, Why? I that, that, that's my question on that one.
0: Um, because the, uh, given the speed at which it's moving and the even – Greater impermeability of of rock, even in the mantle, the radiation simply can't ionize enough atoms to sustain that effect.
2: Ah, okay.
0: So you don't get this drag on Vortilaq. It's not pulling a whole column of rock along behind it. It's it's just moving through that uh, substrate material. So the the assumption is, or at least it's the assumption that Jack Adler makes in chapter seven is that a lot of the effects would go away once Vordelac plunged into the ground and you'd be left with some residual side effects. You'd be left with magnetic traces, but nothing like being able to pull an enormous column of material along behind it that would give rise to the same sort of effects we saw in Tunguska.
2: Interesting. Very fa- Very, very, interesting. very cool
1: and excellent, excellent
2: explanation.
1: You want to do the next one, sweetie?
2: Sure. Um, Joe from Fry. Uh, .com, um is asking about character shorts, and he follows on with, no, not the kind they wear. My question is, have you considered doing short stories about the various characters outside of the Singularity timeline? I would love to hear what the various characters were up to before their paths crossed each other's, especially Mycroft and Yuri. Well... Uh, Mycroft, uh, the real Mycroft and the real Yuri. there is no real Yuri, <laughs> I certainly <laughs> oh, know. Um, they seem so much two sides of the same coin. I would love to see how their younger experiences shape them into who they are when we meet them. Also, for those of us who don't win the contest, how can we get an autographed copy of your book so we can pretend that we did? Keep up the good work. Joe from Denver.
0: Thanks, Joe. Uh, I'll answer that final Thing first, I guess. Um, my publisher does have autographed copies available, and they're on the web at presscom That's P is in Paul, E-R-A-S as in Sam, P is in Paul, E-R-A-Press, pres com. Um, a couple other people also asked that question, so I thought I would deal with it. As to Short stories about mycroft or Yuri or really anybody else um I can certainly see mycroft sustaining that's that sort of interest Yuri is a bit more of a, a stretch for me to uh, to see why anyone would be interested in the, the genesis of a murderous thug such as he is, but i suppose uh, it's conceivable, but in point of fact i'm I'm actually trying to extend the characters' lifelines into the future rather than the past at this point, And they're going to reappear in the new novel, Dualism.
2: Ooh. And when will Dualism uh, – you're still working on that, correct?
0: That's right. Yeah, Dualism, I, I project to have the first draft done sometime in the first quarter of 2007. And after that, it's, uh, it's up to the gods of publishing who uh, – <laughs> grind slowly but exceeding fine,
2: as, the, as, this, as, as Roger Kipling says, yes. And, and of course, he pulled that from long-term phrasings. Yes. Yes. So uh, we're definitely looking forward to seeing dualism soon.
0: Yeah, dualism uh, has lots going on in it, um, including the fact that Knox dies.
2: Oh no no no! <laughs> well, <laughs> in the past,
0: uh, no. This is no. in the future. Oh, okay. This is this is the next thing that happens to everybody. But in science fiction, even death is not. It's, it's not, not final. Sort of, the end.
2: <laughs> sort of like Marvel comics. I got
1: better. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's go for the next one here. Uh, this comes from uh, Dave at Hotmail, and he said, "Dave says." Hi, I loved your book. I have a question that I've been wondering about. Here it is. How fast would a miniature black hole have to be going to be able to exit the Earth? When you try to calculate, start it from before the Earth's gravity takes a major hold on it. Okay.
0: Thanks, Dave. Uh, Actually, um, that one I can hit out of the park because how fast anything has to be going in order to uh, escape Earth's gravity is called the escape velocity, and the answer to that is 7 miles per second or 11 kilometers per second. uh, I'm not sure that that's the question you exactly wanted to ask, though. You might have been asking how fast would Vordelac have been going and how, how much would it have had to slow down for the Earth to capture it. So if I can rephrase that, your question, to the slightly harder one, uh, the the answer is, as I alluded to before, that if, if Waterlock entered the solar system on a parabolic trajectory, which is about as slow as it, it could be, and crossed the Earth's orbit, it would be doing about 40 kilometers per second when it crosses the Earth's orbit. But of course, the Earth is in orbit. That's why we call it Earth's orbit, uh, which means it's moving around the sun at about, uh, I think, 29 kilometers per second. So a lot depends on whether... Um, you're looking at a head-on collision or whether you're looking at sort of a catch-up scenario where the the Earth is moving in its orbit and Vortilac comes in from behind it. In the first instance, the numbers work out to something like 70, 67 or 70 kilometers per second as the impact velocity. And you've got to skinny that down, not just to escape velocity, 11 kilometers per second, but to orbital velocity within the Earth, which is a lot closer to 8 kilometers kilometers per second. So that's that's an awful lot of of uh, braking or deceleration. On the other hand, if we have the come from behind scenario, then Vortilac might be impacting the Earth at, at a speed as slow as 16 kilometers per second. At that point, it only has to lose half of its velocity in order for the Earth to capture it. And you remember the the atmospheric e- effects I was talking about before as Vortilac comes down, it's got this enormous bubble of, of superheated air trailing along behind it.
2: And actually uh, this huge air break.
0: Right. And it, it because not only is Vortilac pulling on the air, the air is pulling returning back. the favor. And, and consequently, if you if you had enough air that it was attempting to, to accelerate, it would, would retard Vortilac's motion. And the, the premise of the book is that that happened just enough uh, to saddle us with the beast rather than have it come popping out of the North Atlantic later on uh, June 30th, 1908.
2: Uh, a follow on question, then the timing of the event uh, would that have placed the placed the Tunguska river Valley in the trailing position for the earth um, uh, in the earth's orbit.
0: Right. I'm trying to remodel this. I, Believe so. It came in over China. Um, it was um, nightside, more or less. It, it was no it, seven fifteen in the morning. Is 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 past the dawn terminator. Uh-huh. I'd, I'd actually have to look at the um, the seasonal direction. Well, good question. Okay, yeah, no <laughs> well, answer. Uh, should, <laughs> well, yeah, we we'll consider you it.
1: <laughs> and, and let me say that we are not able to uh, to participate in winning the signed copy of the book. We have a signed <laughs> copy. We have of one. The book. Yes, we have our own. And uh, our next question comes from uh, Joe and Linda uh, from Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, Joe says, uh, when will the next book be out? I'm totally hooked on your podcast. Um, as as I mentioned,
0: my part of uh, the work is done at the point where I can submit a draft to publishers, to my agent, actually, to go out to publishers. And beyond that, um, if it were snapped up immediately, you would still be looking at 12 to 18 months before it Actually hits the stands, so we're probably looking uh, optimistically at the middle of two thousand eight, which coincidentally, or not so, is the one hundredth anniversary of the Tunguska event.
2: Perfect wow. perfect timing. Awesome, <laughs> awesome.
0: <laughs> All right, and and,
2: and of course, patio, a patio book presentation would uh, be sometime after that or in conjunction with that, but it it is a separate uh, amount of work and. Right, takes time to to
0: effect. Well, it it is, but you actually wind up doing that before the book appears um, if if you're going to do that work. And the the key there is really how the which publisher you get and how they look upon the whole podcasting enterprise. Per Aspera was very much behind this, um, but uh, another publisher might have their own perspective on it. I can't judge.
1: Okay. All right, so our next question uh, comes from Steve, and uh, Steve uh, sent it in uh, as a uh, an audio question, so we'll let him do that one in his own voice.
2: Hello, Bill. This is Stephen in San Jose. You seemed to spend a lot of time
1: setting up Jack Adler as a hero, with the shaman saying that he would be tangling with the singularity himself. And I was wondering if there was another... Idea or version of the book that had him as the lead role. Love the book. Thanks a lot.
0: Okay, well, uh, Stephen, um, another version of the book. There were at least 30 versions <laughs> of Singularity Ooh. that it, it, it passed through, including early versions where Jack Adler did not appear at all, uh, versions where he died. In the campsite at Yuri's hands, versions where he died at Weathertop, at Yuri's hands, um, versions that included major characters or left them off entirely. Uh, the book kind of evolved. It had this spine uh, to it of the Tunguska event and and what could you do with a black hole if you had one in your neighborhood, but a lot of the The uh, individual aspects of it didn't really lock in until maybe the fifth from the final draft. And as I read it and listen to it now, there are things I would go back and change even now. But fortunately, that cup has passed, and I I don't have to worry about, uh, uh, for better or for worse, singularity is, is now part of the public record.
2: And um I think that perhaps the uh, there might be some confusion because I know that you spend uh, in the mythology section. you spend a, a fair amount of time talking about the eagle uh, contesting mm-hmm. with the wolf, but then we actually do have the wolf of Yuri show up
0: that's that's right um, and actually that is an echo of uh, in um, in some versions in earlier versions. Even after Jack Adler was introduced, he uh, never had an interview with Jen Kool. Instead, Mm -hmm. a lot of the elements from that interview were were crowded into the prologue, and my editor felt that that was a bit overboard. But one of the things that wound up on the cutting room floor very early, um, if you go back and look at the Evenki legends, that surround the Tunguska event, you find that there was an enemy sorcerer sorcerer by the name of Magan Khan, also an Evenki, but of a rival tribe, that is said to have come in and uh, cursed his enemies by declaring that that Ogdi would send down his thunderbirds, which were birds about the size of a grouse, but they're made of iron, Mm -hmm. and they actually cause thunder and lightning. And so I included a sorcerer's duel in the original prologue, and I think that version might actually be out on uh, www.borderlock.com. Some, some, oh. some echo of it at least. But in that sorcerers' duel, the two sorcerers took on the aspects. I mean, now you have to understand these guys have been chewing mushrooms all day. Of course. So, <laughs> so there's kind of a, a a blur between reality and and uh, their internal perspective. But they took on the aspect of the eagle versus the the wolf. And so that was what was being carried forward in the uh, interview with the shaman. And um, when I pointed out to uh, an author friend of mine that Adler not only personified the eagle, but his name meant eagle, my, my friend responded that that was like painting the inside of your closet. <laughs> I've, I've never actually looked at the inside of his closets, but I, I guess he doesn't paint. Doesn't so I thought, I'd, I thought I'd make it a little more explicit.
2: So you had someone explain that. that was what right. the name it. Yes. <laughs> very good. Very, very good. <laughs> uh, you want to do the next one, sweetie? Sure. Uh, this is from uh, Robert at Lycos, and he has a question about spin. It says, great book. We'd love to get an autographed copy, even if I don't win. Uh, what caused the PBH, the primordial black hole, to spin on its way to Earth? Wouldn't encounters with interstellar dust have caused it to despin spin due to the interactions causing it to expend energy. This, the PBH spin, seems to be a very critical component of its theoretical interaction with Earth's atmosphere, causing the blast at Tunguska. Best of luck with writing dualism. Bob from Ferndale.
0: Thanks, Bob. Um, let me say... To begin with, that that I agree that maintaining spin, whatever whatever spin was imparted when Wardalok formed, over the course of thirteen point seven billion years, is is no mean task. And uh, although in interstellar, intergalactic space, it's unlikely that there's going to be much of a source of friction uh, that would slow that spin. Still. Over the course of eons, one might expect that it that it would have an effect. A spin is is one of the problematic issues to to what Grecian wants to do with Vortilak, and of course he spends some time spinning it back up. But he might have, in actuality, had to spend more time than the five days I gave him for for pacing reasons. Um, <laughs> However,
2: it is fiction.
0: It is. It is fiction. You
2: are allowed to, to bend a few rules in fiction.
0: And it's a thriller and and uh, yeah. you've, you've got to move things along. And we can't simply say five years later. <laughs> That's uh, all right. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't take Kron that long to lower the boom on Grecian anyway, one would hope. Um, as as to the role that spin plays in creating the phenomena on Ward, Wardlock's arrival at Tunguska, there is none. All of the effects, as I mentioned before, uh, of the Tunguska event can be accounted for by the mechanisms of radiation plus monopolar magnetism. So um, spin plays a role in singularity, but rather late in the game when you're trying to produce a super-extremal uh, Kerr object or, or kerr Newman object Uh, that would cause the event horizon to evaporate
1: or dissipate or warp out of our continuum. Very good. All right. And our final question, which... uh, Oh,
2: no, we have one more after this, sweetie.
1: Oh, that's right. I don't have the final question.
2: Let me pass you that
1: one. Well, no, you can read that one. I'll read the second to final question. This one comes from Aaron M. And uh, Aaron says... uh, First, let me say how much I enjoyed the Patio Book version of your book. I'm looking forward to the release of Dualism in either Patio Book or print form. My question is in regard to the voices of the characters in Singularity. How did you come up with everyone's voices and accents, and when did you know that a voice fit a given character? For example, how did you know what voice Sasha would get versus Arkady Grecian?
0: Thank you, Aaron. I really like that question. Because um, the the simple answer is I, I cheated. Um, I'm I'm not a professional actor, and I, I <laughs> don't really. Uh, the the real difference between someone who's just uh, recording an amateur podcast, or in my case, and a a true professional is that they can not only identify a p- particular character by voice, but then they can consistently use that voice across 20 hours' worth of talking. Uh, that, that was the the uh, brick wall that I hit, at least. Others' experiences, others' mileage may vary. So what I did instead, for the most part, and it's why your question is so interesting, I'll get to that in, in a moment, was rather than try to create different characterizations locally, I used different accents to distinguish the character. So um, Jack Adler, that was easy. He's a, he's a Texan and uh, the Russians had Russian accents and uh, my German had German accent and I totally screwed up the Italian accent for Luciano Carbone. Or, um, <laughs> but, uh,
2: but he was distinct and that was a good thing. Yeah. His voice <laughs> he, was distinct. He was and mm-hmm. he got better as you know.
0: <laughs> his, his final, uh, star turn in, uh, in Chapter Twenty, alive, I, I think I almost nailed him. It's embarrassing because I lived in Italy for a year and a half. You think I, but but my Italian friends always told me I, I spoke uh, Italian with a Russian accent. Anyway, so I just, <laughs> just, just never went away.
2: Oh, well, we we meet him in Russia, so he's speaking in, Italian with speaking English with an Italian you know, Russian that's an accent. That's true. Maybe I did
0: a better job than I, I thought I did. Um, but that's the reason that I I liked uh, Aaron's question so much was because. As he points out i I needed to distinguish within Russian accents, still distinguished characters and there, what I tried for was um, what I think of as shades of light and dark, like sasha is is the opportunistic optimist, and consequently his his voice is just pitched higher and is uh, he talks faster. Grecian is sort of medium dark uh, Yuri of course is pitch black um. Now, why is Grecian medium dark? Because in his own eyes, Grecian is not a villain. Grecian is someone who is saving the world, or at least uh, he may have ulterior motives for it, but, but um, he's doing something that we would just assume someone do, uh, whether or not uh, the ultimate outcome is going to be the same. And by his own lights, he's, he's a patriot. He's restoring things to the way they were supposed to be. Uh, The fact that he's utterly ruthless in pursuit of these goals says something about his character. But I I don't think uh, you would be able to get Grecian to to admit to villainy per se. So uh, consequently, he wound up being kind of only medium dark and hopefully sort of cultured. But that's, that's the way I tried to think of him whenever I was called upon to speak his voice.
1: Now how did you keep the the voices straight between recording chapters? Did you like record a sample of the voice and then listen to it? Did you did you switch accents as you were reading it or did you go through and do multiple passes and just read, you know, one one character's part for the whole chapter and then go back and read the next one? Hey, Paul, we're talking attic here and an old, old uh <laughs> Old recording deck that
0: uh, uh, my grandmother probably could have used. Uh, I, I had I had no capability of of doing multiple passes, so I basically read them live, and you know, people at work would see me talking to myself back and forth <laughs> in, in different voices uh, to try to get it straight. But yeah, I just uh, cranked it up and, and read it cold, and and when it didn't work, I went back and read it again.
2: But- he- did a great job, and I was going to ask you how how you managed the women's voices.
0: Um, I, I hope they sound like women, and that was me. Just um, again trying to be, you know, lighter, less less bass in it, uh, somewhat more breathy. But I, I guess I just I knew I wasn't going to really sound like any of these characters, but I, I just didn't want it to impact the listeners' focus on the story. I wanted it to be as invisible as possible. Truly,
2: I think that you did an excellent job and that all of the characters are distinct. And okay. you can tell who's speaking and at different points. And I think that's very important in a spoken story.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's definitely what I was aiming for. I'm very pleased to hear you say you, you think I hit the mark.
1: Yeah, you definitely did. Uh, I, I was never in doubt for who was talking. And that, that's been a problem with me. With uh, a lot of the readings that I listen to, uh, not just in patio books, but also in professionally published audio books. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, but again, I did have the advantage of having characters that would have distinctive accents. So in a lot of cases, you're really – the minute you hear someone say John – as opposed to John, you, you know, <laughs> you've you know, got a Russian. You know what space you're in. <laughs> yes. so, I, I caught more flack over the Russians spelling John's name D Z H O N uh, than I think any other aspect of the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's of,
2: funny, but because that's how uh, they would pronounce it.
0: Well, that's that's the way you write a D in uh, a J. Excuse me, in uh, in, in in Cyrillic. Sure, oh, awesome. That's, they don't have a J. Um. And in fact, uh Genkool's name in Russian is, is spelled D mm. Um like that. Uh he's he, there was really a Jenkool. A, a real Jenkool. Yeah, you know, at, at the Tungus gave So um
2: and uh, did he survive into old age?
0: Uh yeah he did, but he was um the Jenkool that appears in the novel was his son, actually. Ah. Um, the real Jenkool was was a prosperous Herdsman and would not have uh, survived long enough to, to uh, be interviewed by Jack Adler on his mountaintop
2: there. Right. And our last question is from John at Hotmail. And he has a question regarding super collider created black holes. Ah. It says, Bill... Thank you for sharing your story in podcast form, loved the Russian accents, which we've just been talking about, and for transforming what normally would have been a very complex subject into something a non-physicist can understand. My question is this, and I have to have to praise you on that as well. Um, I have recently heard that scientists are building higher power super colliders, which may be capable of producing small black holes. Of course, after learning about the devastating effects that even a microscopic singularity would have were it to fall into the Earth's core, I am wondering if there is a danger in attempting to do this. And this is from John. And uh, yes, do tell us about that. You touched on it earlier.
0: Yeah. Um Yeah. let me let me give you a chapter and verse on that. Um, there's there's a large difference between a five billion uh, ton object and the kinds of black holes that they're talking about might be created in the large hadronic uh, collider that uh, uh, CERN is about to to start up in Europe. Um, in in one case you you have a primordial black hole that was formed at the outset of the universe, and you can have as much mass accreting there as as would suit the purposes of whatever story you're writing, or for that matter, um, the real ones uh, could be could come in all sizes. Um, it turns out that there's sort of a lower limit that, when Hawking published the the article back in seventy four on black hole radiation, or as he put it, uh, particle generation from black holes uh, he pegged it at about a um, hundred million tons beyond that point it would go into such a rapid uh, cycle of spontaneous radiation that it it would evaporate and would in the process give off uh, as as much um, energy as and I had somebody figure out this conversion about seven thousand all out nuclear exchanges between superpowers all in the course of an instant.
2: And of course you wouldn't want to be around for that. (laughs) No,
0: no. And and
1: you wouldn't be around afterward.
0: Well, you know, as, as, uh, as I think uh, Adler says in in the book somewhere, it'd be interesting to watch from a distance of a couple of light years, but closer than that, you probably wouldn't want to come. Um, So those are, those are the, Vordelock scale black holes. Now the kinds of black holes they're talking about uh, being created in the LHC are truly minimalist. It turns out there is a smallest possible size of, of a black hole, and that's about the Planck mass. And by current physics, the Planck mass is, is a few micrograms. I think, um, it's something like, um, 10 to the 16th, uh, electron volts in terms of, of energy um, again that might all change if some of the predictions about ex- extra dimensions both in string theory and in non
2: string theory theories, yeah, right.
0: uh, turn out to be true that that could result in skinnying down the planck mass
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, from 10 to the 16th TeV maybe to a single TeV now 10 to the 16th that's 16 orders of magnitude, that's uh, 10 trillion times the power that the LHC is going to be able to generate in a proton-proton collision. But one TEV is just about in the range for a proton-proton collision. So you could produce these extremal, tiny uh, black holes. They would evaporate immediately. In fact, the way you'd know that they were there. In fact, the the event that they thought they saw, and I haven't really seen whether they'd fall, Followed up on this, but last St. Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. uh, St. Patrick's Day of 05, um, the way they thought they they detected the the possible creation of a black hole was uh, by the flash of radiation as it evaporated. So the things are going to form, but they're they're almost immediately going to to uh, degenerate into into radiation again. Not not a particular concern. Not even the kind of concern that borderlock would pose if it were orbiting within the Earth.
2: Well, that certainly takes a weight off my mind.
0: Yeah. Now we can you know start to plan summer vacations without worrying about the, the Earth.
2: The shrinking. super collider in, in Switzerland.
1: <laughs> yep. We can, we can all continue on with our plans for Worldcon in Japan in 07 and, uh, and <laughs> yes. not have to worry about the Earth being swallowed up underneath us.
2: And, you know, hopefully dualism will be out in
1: That's right. yeah, early I read... 08. Yep.
2: Yep. Yep. No problem there.
1: Excellent. Well, I think that wraps it up. Uh, you have been listening to Singularity, the book, and the Q&A podcast. I am Paul Fisher. Uh, I want to thank Bill DeSmet and my wife, Martha Holloway, for joining us and, and thank everyone who answered the questions. and uh, Or even asked them. Or even asked them. Uh, okay. And we do
2: want to thank the people who answered the questions, particularly Bill. Bill. Yeah,
1: since he answered all of them.
2: Yes. Well, try it.
1: Yep. And uh, we're going to put a little tag on the end of this. So uh, right after the music, you will, uh, you'll hear Bill announcing who it was that won the signed copy of the book, and he will be getting in touch with you. And uh, I want to let Bill have the last word since he is the author, and this is his podcast. You want to roll in the theme again?
0: You've been listening to Singularity. Now you're done. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This is Bill DeSmet one more time to thank everyone for their probing and enlightening questions and to announce that Cat of Lipstick Alien has won the autographed copy of Singularity. And I'll be in touch with Cat to find out where to send it and how she'd like it inscribed. But meanwhile, here are our judges to explain their reasoning behind this selection.
2: Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, we felt that Kat's question about the Jackson-Ryan hypothesis was the most scientific in spirit. Should we investigate, collect data, and test all plausible hypotheses of the Tunguska event? You bet.
1: Hell yes.
2: We also enjoyed Kat's question about the origin of the characters in the novel. We're always interested in the craft of writing and an author's muse. Thank you again.